and I had one line in one song. It was the song, Do You Hear What I Hear? And I messed it up. I sang, a child, a child, sleeping in the night with a tail as big as a kite. That's not the way that song goes, ladies and gentlemen. People get mad when you sing about baby Jesus with a tail. about that song, Do You Hear What I Hear? It's Psycho. Who wrote that? Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy. I think the shepherd boy's been in the field a little too long, don't you? <laughs> Talking to the sheep. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, we got to tell the mighty king. It's worse, they go to the mighty king. (laughs) A child, a child, shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. How about a blanket? How about some soup? Child shivered in the cold. Throw some gold on him, he'll be fine. (laughs) All right. Uh, no one brings you into the Christmas spirit like Tim Hawkins, amen? Uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, isn't it? Everywhere you go, we see the decorations everywhere, we see the Christmas lights everywhere, and everywhere we go, people are starting to hustle and bustle at Christmas. How many of you have already decorated your Christmas tree at home? Okay, we've still got a few others that are working on it. Christine decorated our tree about three months ago. No, it wasn't quite that long, but it was three weeks ago, and uh, we've been excited about this Christmas season for a while now, and so those lights have been gleaming on our tree in our family room for a few weeks now, and we're excited for this Christmas season at FCC. But we have to be honest, don't we? It is, in many ways, the most wonderful time of the year, but at the same time, it is one of the most hectic and crazy times of the year. The hustle and bustle gets a little overwhelming Sometimes there are too many lights. Sometimes there are too many presents to purchase. Sometimes the crowds at the mall, I shouldn't say sometimes, all the time, the crowds at the mall are too huge. And it's a crazy, hectic time of year. The commercialism has just mushroomed around the Christmas season. In recent years, you go to Costco and uh, around September and they've got Halloween decorations and almost at the same time Christmas decorations. The season starts earlier and earlier and the commercialism grows and grows. And so I've got some good news for you. This month at FCC, we're taking a step back and looking at the heart of Christmas. The simple Christmas message that God sent Jesus, a Savior born, to save the whole world. Amen? And so this series that we're starting today is simply called Simply Christmas. And so I encourage you to have your Bibles with you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 today. So I encourage you to open to the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And I've done a number of Christmas series over the years, and I wanted to take a different approach this year. And so here's an approach I've never taken before. Over these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at Christmas 
from the perspective of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so today we're going to look at that first Christmas through the eyes of Matthew, next week through the eyes of Mark, and some of you may say, well, Mark doesn't even tell us about the birth in Bethlehem. Oh, you're right, but he still has a perspective on that first Christmas. And then on the third week, we'll look at the perspective of Christmas through Luke. And then finally, on Christmas Eve morning, at 10 a.m. on Christmas Eve, we'll be looking at Christmas morning through the eyes of John. And so we've got this exciting journey, Simply Christmas, this month. And we hope you'll be on board with us all month long. Uh, Open your Bibles to Matthew 1. If you uh, don't have your own Bible with you today, we encourage you to bring it next week. In the meantime, grab one of the blue ones from the rack in front of you. You'll find this on page 955, Matthew chapter 1. Now, most of the time when we read the Christmas story from the book of Matthew, we skip the first 17 verses. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 1, look at those first 17 verses quickly, and you'll see why most of the time we skip them. We look at those first 17 verses, and 15 of those first 17 verses are a genealogy, name after name after name, and so often we just skip over that and go right to verse 18 where it says this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. But I want to share with you today some exciting things from the first 17 verses that most often we would gloss over, but these 17 verses are an important part of Matthew sharing the story of the very first Christmas. And there are some insights in here that I bet you've missed over the years. So we're going to be in Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Are you still with me? Trust me, there's some good stuff in here. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We're two-thirds of the way there. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, I'm not certain why we're clapping, but... <laughs> oh, over the, oh, you're just impressed with the name reading. Okay. Well, Lord, I guess I'll take it. All right. Thus, there were the, these were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 
14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go. Make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. May God bless us as we study His Word today. Let's pray. Father, this is Your passage. This is Your Holy Word. And Father, I I think I speak on behalf of all of us when I admit that there are so many things in Your Word that we have only just begun to understand. There are so many treasures, there are so many truths, there are so many powerful insights in your word that we have yet to have grasped. Father, open our minds and hearts to your word today and teach us what you want to teach us through this story of Christmas in the Gospel of Matthew. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think about what we've just read. We've just read the very first words in the New Testament. If you want to read the final words that were given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Old Testament times, you go to the very end of the Old Testament, the final book in the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And God inspired Malachi to write down His Word 400 years before Jesus was born. So in theological circles, we talk about this 400 years of silence. 
A 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew where the Holy Spirit didn't inspire a single person on earth to write Scripture. And so imagine yourself during those 400 years anticipating and waiting for the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The one who would come to save the Jewish people. The one who would deliver them from sin once and for all. The one who would be king of the Jews. There was this anticipation during this 400 year period of silence. So here in chapter 1 verse 1, Matthew breaks the silence by writing the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why on earth, after 400 years of silence, would the Holy Spirit inspire a follower of God to break the silence with a genealogy? We kind of scratch our heads and say, you know what, I could think of a lot of ways to break the silence, and a genealogy wouldn't be at the top of the list, right? But that's exactly what the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to do. Now, in all fairness, Matthew was probably not the first New Testament writer to write his book. That was most likely James, possibly Galatians. However, the Holy Spirit knew that when Matthew wrote this book, the Holy Spirit would have the men who have assembled the Bible together place it as first in the New Testament. Do you think God maybe knew that ahead of time? Absolutely. He knew what He was doing. But why did He have in place this genealogy first after this 400-year period of silence? Well, it's a great question, and he did it in large part because in Matthew's day, as he was writing this gospel account first and foremost to a Jewish audience, God knew and Matthew knew that Jews were really big on genealogies. The people of Israel loved heritage and they loved to look at their family trees. They were very concerned about pedigree, especially when it came to those who were leading and serving them, their rabbis, their priests, and certainly the one who would claim to be the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Scottish theologian William Barclay, I think, explains this really well. He writes, The Jews set the greatest possible store on purity of lineage. If in any man there was the slightest mixture of foreign blood, he lost his right to be called a Jew and a member of the people of God. A priest, for instance, was bound to produce an unbroken record of his pedigree stretching all the way back to Moses' brother Aaron. That's a lot of generations, isn't it? And if that priest married... The woman he married must produce her pedigree for at least five generations back. These genealogical records were actually kept by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. This may seem to us as an uninteresting passage, but to the Jew, it would be a most impressive matter that the pedigree of Jesus could be traced all the way back to Abraham. So, Matthew wrote his gospel account primarily for a Jewish audience. And as he set out in this gospel account to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the King of the Jews, proving that Jesus was both a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of King David, was critical. He had to do this. If he didn't lift up Jesus as clearly coming from the line of Abraham, then Jesus wouldn't clearly be Jewish. And if he couldn't lift him up as being in the line of King David, he would have no right to the throne of David that every Jewish scholar understood the coming King of Kings would be in the line 
of David. So imagine if this genealogy wasn't here and Matthew was being read 1,900 years ago to a Jewish audience. If the pedigree of Jesus Christ could not be proven, then they would ignore the remaining 27 chapters of Matthew. It was important from the get-go to make it clear who Jesus was and what his lineage was. Now, let's take a look at the simple yet powerful names that Matthew uses for our Lord here in these first two chapters. There's some powerful insights in these names. First of all, in verse 1, the first name that's lifted up for our Lord is that simple name, Jesus. Simple name, Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves. Now, we've already heard over the years this simple message that Jesus saves, right? Uh, That's kind of the gospel in two words. Jesus saves. But you may not have known that Jesus' very name means the Lord saves. His very name means salvation. Jesus is the English form of the Hebrew name Joshua, or more specifically, Yeshua, which is a shorter version of the Hebrew longer name, Yehoshua, or Yehovah, or Yahweh, saves. That's what that name means. Yahweh, Jehovah, saves. Friends, there is power in the name of Jesus, isn't there? There's power in the name of Jesus. The great I Am, Yahweh, the One who always has been, always is, always will be, He saves. And all of that is encapsulated in that beautiful name, Jesus. Jesus is the very embodiment of God's salvation. Think about that for a moment. He's the very embodiment of God's salvation. Now, the second name given for Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 1 actually isn't so much of a name, it's more of a title. It's Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean the anointed one and the chosen one. The anointed one and the chosen one. Now, it surprises some people to to learn that Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's a surprise to some people. His name isn't Jesus' first name, Christ's surname. Okay? Christ is not His last name. That's why we do not refer to Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. It's not the family's last name. Christ is a title. It's a title, meaning the Anointed One or the Chosen One. Now, if we look back at Old Testament times, we have some heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, don't we? And those heroes of our faith, to one extent or another, were able at times to bring salvation to a smaller group of people, at least physical salvation. Think of Noah. God lifted up Noah for the purpose of building this ark to preserve the lives of eight people who would continue the human race after the flood. And we look at uh, ones like uh, Abraham, who God raised up to be a blessing to all nations on earth. He was kind of like a mini-savior, never being able to save anyone from their sins, but certainly to help save lives at times. God lifted up King David. King David was one chosen to deliver the people Israel from the Philistines. So he saved lives in Israel, and we know that he was also anointed to be king. So we have these examples in the Old Testament of men and women of God who were chosen by God to save lives at times. And we even have times where the priests and the kings were anointed to carry out a specific purpose of God. But there is a distinct difference with that title Christ. Notice it doesn't say, as a definition of Christ or Messiah, that it means an anointed one. Or a chosen one. 
That word the is critical. Every Jew understood that that title Christ meant the chosen one. The anointed one. And there is none other. So we look at Jesus. Jesus was chosen by God to save not just a few people. Not just a nation of people. Jesus was chosen by God to save the whole world. Only Jesus is the chosen one. Only Jesus is the anointed one. Only Jesus is the Christ. Amen? Amen. So when Matthew breaks the 400 years of silence in the very first verse of the very first chapter of Matthew, he writes a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you may have never thought of it this way before, but this is what he's saying in the Dane paraphrase version of verse 1 of Matthew 1. He's saying, This is the family tree of the one who bears the name Yahweh saves and whose title is the Anointed One, the Chosen One. He is the One you have been waiting for centuries to come onto the scene. This is the family tree of the One chosen by God who was born to save the world. Readers, are you ready for verse 2? That's what he's saying from the get-go. What's another title or name given to Jesus in these first two chapters? We'll skip down to verse 23 of chapter 1. And another name of Jesus is shared. Another name of our Lord. It's Emmanuel, which Matthew explains means God with us. Don't you love that title of Jesus? It's one of the most beautiful names of Jesus, especially at this Christmas season. God with us. With us. When an angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph in a dream, he told him that Mary's pregnancy was miraculous. It was brought about by the Holy Spirit. And in verses 22 and 23, the angel tells Joseph that the birth of Jesus would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy dating back 500 years in the book of Isaiah. You can read it in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 where it says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And just in case Joseph was so shocked in this dream by an angel speaking to him, the angel explains, in case you forgot Joseph, here's what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. Now take a moment and think about that beautiful name of our Lord. God with us. Hmm. God with us. God with me. God with you. God with us. He isn't just Jesus, the embodiment of Yahweh's salvation. He isn't just the Christ, the anointed one chosen by God to save the world. He is also God with us. Don't miss this. Jesus proves once and for all that God is with us. He proves it once and for all. We all know that life is a roller coaster, don't we? Just imagine yourself in that roller coaster car and at times in life we're slowly making our way up the steep hill with that annoying noise. When am I going to get to the top of this thing? And the fear is sinking in because we know what goes up must come down and we get to the top of that hill. I remember the first time I went on Goliath at Magic Mountain. Those roller coaster inventors were really, really smart because they put Goliath right next to Colossus, 
When I was a kid in junior high, the first big roller coaster I went on was Colossus. And we parked in that parking lot. And you remember, those of you who have been to Magic Mountain, as you're walking from the parking lot to the front gate, you're walking the length of Colossus. And you're looking up as a kid at this huge thing saying, Oh, I can't do it. And I went on Colossus and I remember thinking that first hill on Colossus was like on top of the world. There couldn't ever be a roller coaster taller than Colossus. And then those engineers a few years later put in Goliath and you're going up that first hill and you wave goodbye to the top hill on Colossus. There it went. And I'm going up another ten stories or whatever it is before you drop off that hill. In life, sometimes we're going up that hill slowly and we get to the top and it's kind of nice when you're on top of the hill, isn't it? But what goes up must come down. And there you go. And you're in a free fall. And sometimes life is like that. Things are going well and all of a sudden, bam! You're you're dropping down at this sharp incline. It's a hair-raising experience. You're dropping into this valley. And from that valley, sometimes you're going back and forth and all around being shaken up. Sometimes you go upside down. Life is a roller coaster. And sometimes when we're in those valleys, sometimes when we're experiencing those harrowing twists and turns, we lift up prayers and it seems like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Sometimes we cry out to God and it seems like God's nowhere to be found. Sometimes we're going through all of this stuff and we're wondering, God, are You even out there? And Jesus Christ, know this friends, Jesus Christ proved once and for all, God is with us. Our feelings are a very poor test of what is real and true. Sometimes we do feel like we're all alone. It's normal to feel that God isn't there. No matter what we've been taught at church, it seems at times when we're in those valleys that our prayers are not being heard. But our feelings lie to us. What is real? Jesus is real. What is true? Jesus is true. Even when you feel alone, the truth is you're not alone. God is with us. When it feels like God isn't there, the truth is God is there. God is with us. When it seems like God isn't listening to your prayers, the truth is God hears your prayers. Jesus proves once and for all that God is with us. God cares. God loves. God forgives. God saves. God is with us. Let's give Him a hand praise this morning. I am so thankful that Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh's salvation. I am so thankful that He is the anointed one, the chosen one, born to save the world. And I am equally thankful that He is God with us. Jesus Christ does not save us from a distance. He saves us from among us, from within us. Jesus, finally, according to chapter 2, verse 2, is King of the Jews. King of the Jews. He is the rightful successor to David's throne. Here are a couple interesting facts about this title, King of the Jews, that maybe you didn't know. I didn't know until this last week. There are only two occasions in the New Testament when Jesus is called the King of the Jews. And here's a couple little tidbits, a couple little facts that I think are interesting. He's only called King of the Jews on a couple occasions. Number one, It's here in Matthew 2 when the Magi are searching for Jesus. And and then secondly, at Jesus' trial before Pilate. And here's what I find is kind of interesting. Those two occasions, both times Jesus is called King of the Jews, He's being called King of the Jews by a non-Jew. Chapter 2, it's by the Magi. They weren't Jewish. They were pagan astrologers from Saudi Arabia or from Iraq or somewhere east of Israel. 
And then the second instance at Jesus' trial, he's before Pilate. Pilate wasn't Jewish either. He was a mixture of bloodlines. And he calls him king of the Jews. So interestingly, Jesus is called king of the Jews on these two occasions by non-Jews. So it seems to have been a title used by certain non-Jews outside of the Israelite community who had some understanding of the fact that Jesus was the rightful successor to David's throne. So these are the beautiful and powerful names and titles of our Lord communicated here in the first two chapters of Matthew. Our Lord is Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of salvation, chosen, anointed by God to save the world. He is our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. We are never alone. Jesus proves that fact once and for all. And finally, He is King of the Jews, the rightful heir to David's throne. And Jesus will sit on that throne throughout eternity. Amen? It's not a temporary kingship. It's an eternal reign that He enjoys. Now, I want to point out a couple other things about these first two chapters. And I want us to look specifically at the genealogy in these first 16 verses. I'd like us to take a look at this because I imagine, like me, over the years, as you've looked at this part of Matthew 1, you've kind of either skimmed through it or skipped it entirely because it looks boring and it seems unimportant. Am I right? Let's be honest. Seems boring and unimportant. There's nothing in there for me. I understand the Jewish people like genealogies a lot, but you know I don't. So I'm going to go to the next part. But there are some things in here that I think are so, so important. First off, I want you to notice that four women are listed in Jesus' genealogy. Scandalous, isn't it? What's the big deal, Dane? Four women mentioned in the genealogy. Who cares? The big deal is, in Jesus' day, in Jewish genealogies, ladies weren't mentioned. The Jewish culture in Jesus' day was a patriarchal culture. The guys were in charge. They didn't list the ladies in their genealogies. Especially ladies who didn't have a squeaky clean record or past. But let's take a look at these four ladies that are mentioned in the genealogy. And before I mention the first one, Some of you may not know this. Uh, It was a common prayer of Jewish men in Jesus' day. As part of their morning prayer, they would pray this. O Lord, thank You that I am not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. Isn't that just a glorious prayer? Uh, Doesn't that just really warm your heart, guys? Ladies, doesn't it just warm your heart? They would literally pray that, many on a daily basis, thank you that I'm not a slave, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, thank you that I'm not a woman. I don't think little Malachi likes that prayer. I don't like it too much either. But that was a reality in Jesus' day in this patriarchal society. Look at these four women who are listed in this genealogy. First of all, in verse 3, is Tamar. In Genesis 38, catch this, we read that Tamar dressed up like a prostitute, and had sexual relations with her father-in-law. Interesting lady to have in Jesus' genealogy. What about verse 5? Rahab. Now, as far as we can tell, Tamar was just a one-time prostitute. But from all we gather about Rahab in the book of Joshua, she was a full-timer. So, so far, two women mentioned in the genealogy. One was at least a one-time prostitute, and the second was a full-timer. Not exactly spotless records there. Then there's Ruth in verse 5. As far as we can tell, she was 
a woman of sexual propriety, but she was a Moabitess. And it said in the book of Deuteronomy, Jews were to have nothing to do with people from Moab. And then finally, we have Uriah's wife mentioned in verse 6. We know Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. Bathsheba has an affair with King David. Now, you look at the text in the Old Testament, it's clear that David was the aggressor. I think it's safe to say David was more at fault. But put yourself in the shoes of a true blue Jew in Jesus' day. They would not have looked at Bathsheba as having a spotless record. So here we have, from a Jewish standpoint, a woman who is a one-time prostitute, a woman who is a full-time prostitute, a woman whose genealogy had nothing to do with Israel, she wasn't supposed to mix with Israelites, and then fourthly, a woman who they viewed as an adulteress. These are the four women that are included in Jesus' genealogy, and we ask the question, why on earth were these women spotlighted in this genealogy when typically genealogies would just include the men and it could have been glossed over and no one would have given given it a second thought? What's the deal? Well, I think William Barclay says it well. He writes, quote, If Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Jesus Christ than these four women. But surely there is something very lovely in this. Here, at the beginning of the Gospel account, Matthew shows us the essence of the Gospel. Catch this. For here he shows us the barriers going down. The barrier between Jew and Gentile is down. The barriers between male and female are down. The barrier between saint and sinner is down. Somehow God can use for His purposes and fit into His scheme of things those who have sinned greatly. I came, said Jesus, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen? Say, Barkley, that'll preach. That'll preach. You see how the good news of Jesus Christ is contained right here in this little genealogy that you've always thought was boring and unimportant? Jesus didn't come to be the Savior of those who have their act together. Jesus didn't come to be the Savior of those who have a squeaky clean record. Those who have no skeletons in the closet. Jesus came to be the Savior of the whole world. And that includes hookers. And that includes addicts. And that includes those who are in sexual relationships that are outside of God's plan and purpose of one man and one woman in a covenant marriage for life. This includes those who are gossips and those who are liars and those who are cheaters and those who are thieves and those who are murderers. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've strayed from God and how far from Him you've left, Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of the world no matter how many skeletons are in your closet. That's who Jesus came to be. He came for me. And He came for you. No matter what your past looks like. We must simply place our trust in His salvation and once and for all turn away from our sin and live for Him. Jesus may call you to follow Him despite those skeletons in your closet. But you may not clench to those and carry them around with you for the rest of your life. You choose to follow Him, you're a brand new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He's going to wash you clean and you have to live for Him. There's one more powerful insight I want to share with you from this genealogy that I don't want you to miss. Matthew points out in verse 17 
that Jesus' genealogy is broken down into three groups of 14 generations each. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. Second group, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon. And finally, 14 generations between the exile to Babylon and Jesus' birth. Now take a look at group 1. It's in verses 2 through 6. Group 1 begins with Abraham, ends with King David. So, Abraham had a nickname, remember? Abraham was called a friend of God, remember? Right? He was called a friend of God. Someone came up with another nickname out there. I didn't hear it, so you're off the hook. Abraham was called a friend of God. King David had a nickname too. King David was called a man after... So look at it this way. Between verses 2 and 6, these 14 generations in group 1, they begin with a man who is a friend of God and end with a man after God's own heart. Okay? Still with me? Group number 2 begins with King David and ends with the exile. So, group 2 begins with a man after God's own heart and ends with a generation of Israelites who had completely turned their hearts away from God and therefore God punished them through the exile. You with me so far? Friend of God to man after God's own heart. Second group, man after God's own heart to a generation whose hearts were completely turned away from God. Third group begins with those whose hearts were completely turned away from God and ended with Jesus Christ. We've missed this all of our lives. This tells the Gospel story and the story of human history in a nutshell. Here's the story of human history. We were created as friends of God to become men and women after God's own heart. But we squandered that wonderful gift by turning our backs on God. And as a result, we suffered defeat and death. But Jesus Christ came to give us grace and hope and life. That is simply Christmas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You. Man, do we find ourselves at the end of group 2 and the start of group 3. We've wandered from You. We've turned our backs on You. We've gone our own way. And Lord, You sent Jesus to restore us. So once again, as Jesus said to His saved disciples, I no longer call You servants. I call You friends. Thank You. Lord Jesus, thank You for making it possible even though we've got those skeletons in our closets, even though we have those checkered paths, You've given us a way to be forgiven and be justified, meaning just as if I had never sinned in a relationship with our holy God, being Your friend once again, being men and women after Your own heart once again. Lord, I pray today as we start this Christmas season together here at this church that You would restore us Cleanse us. Make us new. We want to be your friends. We want to chase after your heart. We want to be what you created us to be. Lord Jesus, we come to you. The only way we know how. Broken, with open hands. Leaning on you to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. As our eyes are still closed, maybe you're here today and you've never made that decision to accept Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't make you jump through a lot of hoops. He doesn't say lift up 119,000 Hail Marys. He doesn't say go to church eight days a week, every week 
for the rest of your life. He simply says, come. Trust in me. Repent. Turn from your sin. Confess me as Lord and Savior. And if you're serious about doing that, about trusting in me and repenting from your sin and confessing me as Lord and Savior, you prove it by being baptized in water. Showing God, the angels, and anyone who's watching, I am giving my life to Jesus Christ. As I go down into this water, my old life is buried. It's done with. I'm living for You from this point forward. Lord Jesus, help us to come to You. Help us to come to You. In Jesus' name. So we're standing right now for this song of invitation.